Hello, Rachel. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for inviting me to chat with you today. No, I'm honoured that you wanted to come on and, and talk. I know you're incredibly busy and I know you're in the, uh, the middle of quite a busy upheaval and re-establishing your roots. And how has that all gone? Uh, do you know what? It's been really amazing. So we moved from Brighton, like in a city, to the countryside in uh, just a bit further along the coast in Sussex, just outside Arundel, about two months ago. And it's, yeah, it's been amazing. We've gone from a little two-bed flat to a lovely house that's on a little farm. And we're currently just building some uh, vegetable beds. Oh, lovely. More space to roam. Yeah, great for the dogs, the kids. I think just great for us to be in nature. Yeah, I think I'm just, I don't know whether it's a thing that comes with age. I'm just for the simpler life. Like I can't yeah. be bothered with the hustle and bustle. It's, I've just decided it's not for me. I think I've been fighting that for quite quite a lot of my life. Just I think I like being next to nature. We're quite fortunate here we're next to the sea. So I think if I wasn't next to green or water, I wouldn't be a very happy individual, probably. Yeah. Dan, I'm really sorry. The dog's just opened the door and it's really windy. So I'm going to just... Yeah, I've had to lock Daisy inside, actually, because she's a needy puppy and she'd want to cuddle or, or to yeah. at least try to talk to you. <laughs> there we go. I say talk to you literally. I'm convinced that she understands every word I say. I was always, before I had my own dog, I was always one of these people, like, people kiss and cuddle their dogs, like I get their <laughs> pet. I totally get it now. She's my, she's my fur baby. She yeah. Was, yeah because you have two now right we've got two one of them is like our fur baby and she's wonderful the other one is like a monster in a big <laughs> body and she's since we've moved here she has ran so many times because she just bless her she's just a beagle she gets a scent mm. and she goes so the tracker has been on 100 percent of the time uh, how has like life been in general with the switch and I guess, like, if you don't mind me saying, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Is was it a little bit of shooting for the simpler life for you as well? A hundred percent. I think that well, when I moved, I moved from Guildford. I'd lived in Guildford for ten years because I went to uni there, and then I wanted to move back to the sea. So that move initially was kind of to drive a little bit of the simpler life. But and then obviously the prices of of mm -hmm. just living has gone up, and we you know, we didn't want to need to work as much if we didn't have to. So actually moving to the country has made it a little bit easier for us. There's not, we, we both found sometimes we were getting caught up in that, like you said, that hustle, that mm. almost like we're all racing for something that we didn't really know what we were racing for. Mm. And actually, I think just taking ourselves away from that situation, we both really, you know, it's allowed us to just do what we want to do and you know give back a little bit to community and just have a bit more time yeah I think one of the things that perhaps we've spoken about not recorded before but I don't know whether you can resonate with your journey but I can certainly resonate with my journey and this this phrase that sticks in my mind especially within the fitness community and kind of culture on the broader scale is confusing self-enlightenment with self-avoidance yes confusing self-avoidance with self-enlightenment and that a lot of us yeah or bypassing yeah human bypassing I've heard it referred to I think you've referred to it as that and I just wonder whether because I've had certain different incarnations of that over the years where you know we've got this narrative that we tell ourselves we invest a bunch of time and energy into that whether it's achieving academically achieving 
um, professionally or, or whatever it is, but it's, I found it's like just been a, a very comfortable tool of numbing, which I think a lot of people can resonate with, whether it comes to food or it's what they do with their work or, you know, whatever pursuit they have is we've got this disembodied practice of just not being attuned with our true selves, I feel these days. And I, I think it's it's essentially something that's just learned from society as well. We're so molded, aren't we? Mm. It, from day one, you know, our kids are put in shirts and ties and told to sit at a desk, sit at a desk all day. And actually that's probably not what they truly want to do. Their bodies want to move, they want to explore. Um, and obviously you're not saying the education system isn't important, but I think we are we are being designed to put back into a capitalist society. Yeah, yeah. Well, you look at the infrastructure it hasn't changed in the last century. And I think even in terms of focal points and the mounting pressure they have on kids now, like, you know, mm -hmm. Mika will come back now. She's only just turned seven and it's the things that you have to remember. Remember a pound for this. Don't forget to do your homework. Don't forget to do your mm -hmm. reading as well. Don't forget to bring your kit for this. But then, you know, arguably some of the more important life skills are totally missed. Mm -hmm. you know, like we do make a conscious effort to cook or, at home, but that's not something that we really touch on there or, you know, yeah. why they might move their bodies and why that might be good for them and why, you know, certain creative pursuits are good for their brains as well. Social connection, all these other things. I don't really address that, but we're still learning about, I'm not saying history isn't important, but like history is a hugely important thing in schools and you know arithmetic and algebra and I mean I don't know about you I can't I can't really remember the last time I used Pythagoras theorem but I, I know I learned that at school I can't remember a thing about it but I know I learned that at school yeah and I think maybe the way we we as adults were especially something that I struggled with was like this concept of play mm. and you know I grew up believing that the most important thing in my life was to do well at school and get a good career. And that is how the, my life path was dedicated to. And in no way do I blame my parents. They were wonderful. They did the best they could with the knowledge that they had. But I think, you know, being able to create some awareness, and that was partially because I've had the privilege of going to therapy and working with an amazing therapist, is that actually these things like play and rest pursuits are just so important what's the point in us all pushing and striving for something if we don't have time capacity energy to experience joy and pleasure and enjoy ourselves I mean uh, you know I often think about the influence of parents and the impact of that if you had to go back if it's not too personal to ask it's obviously a bit of a generational thing I think that's passed mm -hmm. down as well where do you think that kind of started for you did that start at primary school can you remember that period yeah, I think, I think, sorry, my dog's having a right yawn. I <laughs> think it um, probably started, probably started from competitive sport, I would say, um, when I was younger. And the, the aim of the sport, I was a gymnast, was to win. Mm. The aim was never to enjoy it. It was to win medals because, you know, I thought if I was good at something, that is the purpose. I have to be the best at something. And I think I was lucky to be academically gifted. And when you do do well at school, I think you're very much praised. So when I was in senior school, I think I got seven A stars and three A's at GCSE. 
And I was really disappointed because I didn't get all A stars. Mm. And if I look back at that now, I feel so sad for my like inner teenager because somewhere along the line, I learned that my self-worth was linked to that achievement focus. Did you feel that pressure at the time as well? Was that something at the forefront of your mind that I have to, you know, it has to be A stars or nothing? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I felt it was, that was what I'd been predicted. That was what I should get. I thought what would happen if I didn't get it? Um, and I, you know, we laugh about it as a family now, but something that was said a lot was if you don't work hard, you'll become a hairdresser as if being a hairdresser was a, is, was a really negative thing. And now, for example, my mum loves her hairdresser and she's a really important part of her life. But I think that just shows how we've all grown as a family and, and kind of as a culture as well, a little bit about, especially I think during lockdown, we realised actually the roles that people have in our lives are so hugely important and that's nothing to do with academic qualifications. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you say about the lessons learned over the pandemic. I don't know whether that's true of everyone. Yeah. <laughs> a really horrible example is I went to the gym the other day, a guy came out of a cubicle, just walked straight out the door. Not washing his hands, just I'm not going to bother with that. You know, after a pandemic and all of that, I mean, that's pretty gross, but that, that's a, a really gross example. But I think some people, especially the ones I've spoken to, that were desperately trying to get back to life before the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. Going back to exactly this. And there's no judgment from me. It's yeah. just, I think, I don't know, it's a, I don't want to say a great opportunity to, because, you know, that comes with an element of privilege because... You know, some people lost everything over yeah. that period. So they were forced to make those changes. But I do think it's it's awfully sad to not reflect on that period and want mm-hmm. to change anything, even if it's, you know, recognising it's quite nice not to sit on a train for two hours, two work yeah. a day and two hours on the way back. And I think that's opened a lot of eyes. Uh, yeah. Eyes. yeah. And, and I think it's, again, about this, this is a desire for more free time that our work our work should not dictate our whole life and again I say that from a place of privilege because I know some people have to work a lot because from a financial position because of the way our society is but yeah growing up believing I was my career I think yeah the pandemic has certainly helped me to realize that there is more yeah and then obviously with your academic achievements then was your your physical striving for the next thing what what came after uh, gymnastics at school for you because I know you've done various different things if you don't mind me asking I'm gonna be yeah. really um so after gymnastics so I grew up as a gymnast and a dancer and then I became I really enjoyed marathon running for a little bit and then I went into I think it was in uh, maybe when we first met so how long ago is that I think I was thinking maybe about 10 years ago that was but I think we, we met 2012 2012 so over 10 years ago yeah so that was the um I won't call what I did bodybuilding bikini I did but that oh, era I just I don't even describe myself as a competitor I describe myself as a participant of yes revealing because actually when I reflect back on air quotations bodybuilding I was never really invested in bodybuilding yeah. it was all about body revealing because I grew up in a much larger body as a teenager and it was about putting those demons to rest but that exacerbated a whole other other but, thing yeah. Yeah. yeah so then I went down that route for a couple of years and why I did it I did it in my final year of my 
first degree as well which probably wasn't sensible um being in a calorie deficit for that for that period of time and um then I just realized it wasn't for me I didn't Mm -hmm. like being on stage I didn't like being looked at I didn't like the fake tan and the whole thing some people love it and that's great but for me it didn't work I liked the training side of it and then I think as I was increasing my eating again I was doing some strength training and someone, a coach had just started to work at my gym and saw me doing some um, leg training. I think I was doing squats and they came over and said, had I considered to do powerlifting? So then I spent probably three or four years in powerlifting um, and I did really well. I broke the British records. I won the European championships. and But I realized it was taking over a huge part of my life. Because mm. again, I think when you have the capacity to Persian when you know you're good at something it it does start to creep in Mm. did you feel that was more so than the physique side of things yeah I think so because the physique I think because of the physique side of things honestly I wasn't as good at it because I didn't I didn't like it yeah your thoughts are now with everything you've learned I know hindsight is a wonderful thing because I went through a period of of you know, essentially being judged on my appearance and being invisible or visible for all the all the wrong reasons growing up. And I thought, oh, I know what's going to make me feel better, being objectified and stuck on stage and being centre of attention, which I hate, posing, which I despise. And actually, like, I can't I can't figure out, re- well, I do know why. I, I think there was this, this self-worth thing attached to appearance and this validation thing I was striving <laughs> for. But it's interesting, obviously, with everything that you know now is, do you... What lessons can you take from that period? So I think certainly around placing self-worth and self-identity on one aspect of the self is never a good idea because when that aspect is lost, you're left with nothing. So your self-worth just drops entirely. I think I think for me, there was probably an element of being within the fitness industry and it almost, I saw someone share this the other day on social media around it being almost like my body was my business card. Yeah, it felt like a rite of passage at that time. It felt like um, the done thing to earn your stripes. Because I think about, you know, what the, the individuals, because we came into industry around the same time, is mm-hmm. the people that you aspire to be like, the the authorities, the ones that had their voices heard professionally, they were getting half yeah. naked on stage as well. And yeah, it felt like the done thing. Yeah, and obviously there is that belief that you think if other if you other people see you in shape, whatever that shape means, that that will sell. Mm-hmm. And actually, we know having gone through that process that that is when you're on stage, you are not in any sort of healthy place at all because you are dehydrated. You're probably way under your healthy set point, and that's not a that's I think back now that's not a role model that I want to. That's not a message I want to push out there in any way yeah but that's still a a, like a prevalent message out there isn't it that's still the I guess the dominating theme around things and I I don't know whether that will change I often think has my echo chamber changed or are things culturally shifting I do think there are more voices that are accepting that actually there's more to this fitness and health thing than just your appearance but is still largely dominated by people that are this is the be all and end all and this cures my any mental health things that you have or this is going to make you wealthier more successful and everything else that comes with it 
Yeah. Yeah. And again, I think that's like, it's referred to as, what's it called? It's called the halo effect. And it is um, a concept where if someone is in a, a, a body that we aspire to, we automatically have this impression that they are successful and everything in their life is perfect. And I think until we overcome, and it's a, a complete societal issue, like things like weight stigma, we're going to be stuck in, okay, people within the health and fitness industry should look this way. Mm. And trustworthy as well. I think I read something similar along the lines that people that are objectively beautiful and have symmetrical features are more trustworthy in perceptions of a lot of other people. So that's some, understandably, that's why people shoot for that quite often. Yeah, because we believe that if we yeah fit into that, body people will believe that we are mm. trustworthy successful you know safe to work with all those those types of things yeah and that's constantly reinforced as well because you see the praise and the accolade that comes with that the followers the influencer deals and it does confirm all those things that people suspect that wealth and success come with it some of the time i don't know i, I don't want to sound like a pessimist but i can't see it changing because it, it's a capitalist thing isn't it? it arguably it's built off diet culture and capitalism and it ticks all the boxes in that regard yeah and I think it takes courage to step outside and just say yeah I know that could potentially lead to wealth and success and whatever else that I desire but it feels wrong and mm. so I'm not pursue that path anymore yeah this is something that I, th- I feel like if anyone listens to these consistently they get bored of me saying this because it's something I discussed with Ella the fitness psych I don't know whether you're familiar with Ella yes especially about the cost of congruence sometimes and that you know with your message being at ease with that and you know displaying this awareness of these things that are involved with health outside of that that you know it might have a cost to business but then you can sleep easier at night and being at ease with that which is a difficult pill to swallow because I've seen quite often at least some of the people and some of the messaging that I saw moving away from just the solely aesthetic side is they perhaps weren't getting as much success with that so they've 180 back on the previous message because that is easy to sell you know fat loss and body transformations and photo shoots they are easy to sell and people have bills to pay they have mortgages to pay i do get that but i don't i, I just can't and I, I say this as someone i wouldn't call a business person just someone yeah. that's invested into doing the job I'm not out here giving anyone business advice, but for me personally, I can't do that. And it is a little bit of cutting my nose off to spite my face sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And I think I'd probably be within completely in the same way and that, you know, 10 years ago, that was probably my messaging because that was my belief system. And I think it comes back to that self-avoidance and bypassing again, that I thought that that was right mm. until I, I started to delve into mm, something feels a little bit off here. And I think, yeah, probably business did take a hit for a little while, but then you find, then you find your niche mm. and you find, you know, I think when you work from a place that aligns with your morals, it just generally feels better. And I think people pick up on that. Yeah. Yeah. That more authentic representation of yourself comes through naturally without trying. Yeah. Some of the messaging is almost encouraging people to be an inauthentic version of someone else to be successful but under the guise of authenticity which I mean when people talk about authenticity it's often quite cruel callous polarized phrasing uh, tough love and real talk and 
I don't know whether that is truly being authentic because I can't, well, maybe it's, it's in my naivety. I can't fully believe that some people go out of their way to be that mean sometimes. Like, yeah. you know, I, I'm, I'm a deeply flawed human. I'm not saying I'm any angel here, but some of the stuff that people say online about others are just, but yes. again, that's rewarded, isn't it? It's really strange. Yeah. The worst aspects of society. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's with anything. It's like the polars, aren't they? they they're the voices that get heard the most because... I think just people are interested. Yeah, yeah. People like gossip. I don't know where that comes from. There must be some psychological explanation for that, but yeah. to latch on to, to gossip and drama and controversy. Yeah. I wonder whether it's back to like the dopamine hit. Yeah, maybe. We, we look at te- even television, I think things like Love Island, which have been like, you know, you watch what you want to watch, but it's been associated with, you know, people taking their own lives or death by suicide as is better phrased and you know objectification of people and glorifying the worst aspects and the sexualization of everything but it's put on every year yeah and lots of people watch it yeah yeah so we we highlight and we can acknowledge the worst aspects of it but because it's popular and there's money to be made and people talk about it they still put it on yeah yeah. And I wonder whether what that that says about that uh, a need that is missing it in society for most people mm. for them to desire to need to watch those type of things to to feel good or to feel calm or relaxed. Yeah, does it make people feel better about their lives? Yeah, yeah. Who knows? Who knows? But with TV and social media, I just find it's got this thing about it almost dehumanizes people. We feel more at ease with it because we're experiencing the world two D through a screen. Is we're not in any shape or form empathetic about what that person might be going through or why they're behaving in a certain way. It's just, this is quite gritty. This is something to talk about the next day. And yeah. yeah. And I think it is very hard to feel that. And I think that's probably one of the, I like, I'm a, I'm a massive fan of social media. I think it, it's amazing for creating online community, but I think one of the things that we sometimes fail to do is differentiate between an online community and in person mm. because we cannot get the same connection we cannot feel that same empathy or gratitude for people that we've never met and are in a space on a square as we can when we meet and having a coffee with someone yeah totally and I think when we talk about the well-being spectrum is that emotional connection is such a mm. neglected discussion like actually true connection with people not just digitally or for the sake of ulterior reasons sometimes like social climbing or being associated with someone if I might you know get some of their followers if I comment on this and the kind of the social media politics because I don't think the issue is social media I just perhaps it's social media is being used to fulfill needs it was never designed to fulfill yeah but then you say that but then I think now um, it's not something that I have loads of knowledge on, isn't something to do with the way all the algorithms work, that the more that you're on it, the more almost ad- attention that you receive. So now we're almost reinforcing that actually this is a, I think there's been a Netflix on it actually, hasn't there? I haven't watched it. Um, but I think people that used to work for. Oh, I, yeah, I think, I can't remember what it's called, but it was quite terrifying and also everyone that was speaking about it doesn't let their children use and they don't use it themselves yeah which is really which is really interesting isn't it it is 
how do you juggle that with work because you you know you're someone that works with people remotely do you have a strict kind of how much i'm going to use it how much time i'm going to invest in it how much i'm going to communicate with people on off hours that kind of thing uh do you know what i am not a huge user of social media anymore it's something i previously did invest some time and energy in um sorry my dog is get down thank you um and it's not that it's I, I think it can play a huge role in creating a bigger business um but I guess that's not my priority right now mm. um I connect with my clients when I speak with them um so I don't actually I have a policy with clients that I don't communicate with them over social media because they have my email yeah yeah I um, think the approach yeah and you know I think part of my my business model is that I want to create an intimate deep business rather than a big business mm, yeah I think similarly actually because I think even from although you know my work's quite different from you is I'd much rather more closely work collaboratively with a you know 20 individuals max kind of thing rather than big scalable and I think that's you know that's a message that's changed over the years because it's all about scalability. It's all about streamlining. It's all about, you know, working with as many people as possible. I certainly think there's a place for, you know, I'd love for my message to reach more people, but I don't think that should be to the detriment of the people that I'm working with. Yes. And I think sometimes that message gets diluted, doesn't it, a little bit, if you start mm. start expanding it perhaps more than you wanted to in the first place. And I think, again, I think it's that society message that if you're doing well, you can do better still. Yeah, constantly. You can still earn more, and that we should be striving to develop these huge, you know, business models and be taking people on and, you know, pass, you know, earning more money, helping more people. But what if what we do is enough? Yeah. Well, I think it's, you know, on a deeper level, it's what, when are you enough? Because I think it's it's tied to self-worth for a lot of people. It's not just when is it enough, it's when do I feel enough? And because we constantly move those goalposts, it's, you know, as someone that has struggled with self-worth in the past, is I think that is something you associate with achieving, but not only achieving in terms of your own acknowledgement of your accomplishments, it's making sure that it's acknowledged by others. Or, you know, if you were to tell someone else, they would be able to acknowledge it as well. Not necessarily something to brag about, but you know, whether that's from pride or something that you could, you know, share and others would be impressed by that. I don't know where that comes from. Yeah. Well, I think perhaps it's that same as that, as you were saying earlier, just this desperate human need for emotional connection to be seen. Mm. You know, I think those, I was like a hundred percent achievement focused, did one qualification, wanted the next one. Was just me kind of just saying, Hey, see me like, Mm. tell me I matter tell me you know because mm. I needed to, I needed that someone else to see that I was doing well yeah. and I think when you do work and when you do grow your own self-worth and it's 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 a huge difference but I think one of the things that really helped me was to develop a community a, an in-person community that you know it it didn't matter whether I failed at something because I have this community that don't really care yeah yeah you have community confidence or like it's that tribal thing isn't it you don't need as much personal confidence Mm. because you're never going to get thrown out the tribe for like getting an a instead of an a star yeah yeah absolutely when did that realization creep in for you when did you you realize that because i I, you know just my own 
I, I don't think I realised that till I was 30. Well, <laughs> I do. Know, I think so. That. I think 30 probably, I think a lot happens at 30, doesn't it? I don't know whether it's the age, whether it's the brain maturity, mm. but yeah, late 20s, 30, I think it took. And I think because of the way perhaps I was living, the way society pushes us to live, I would think I personally was like just rushing through life so much and I never had time to think about these things. Yeah, just, just trying to get through. And I think a lot of people are there is... Yeah. As you say, they're not necessarily experienced that daily joy. They're just getting by. They're just surviving. They're just on autopilot a lot of the time. And yeah. I think that was that was my twenties largely. And it does take that pause of thought and that removal from everything around you. We talk about being present, but I don't know whether lots of people truly know what that is. I, again, something that's taken a lot of practice for me, and I still find it quite challenging. I do yeah. sometimes because you're you're already you're always coerced and pulled to take your attention elsewhere you know, which is removed from you and how you're feeling, how you're experiencing the world. And the way it manifests itself, it comes out in unhelpful ways sometimes. And I think, unfortunately, it's when it's got unhealthy or it's, you know, brought about something, probably I won't share on here, but yeah. <laughs> um, the less helpful side of things, at least, and you're like, okay, the something's up, but that's been bubbling away there for a while. Yeah, yeah. And it's almost like just how it presents itself. Mm. Um, I think for me, learning about things like evolutionary theories, like polyvagal theory, window of tolerance theory, learning more about nervous system um, regulation, really interested in neuropsychology, those type of things have helped me to understand more about the connection between like the physical and the mind and how actually when we are, like you said, present, connected, grounded, we feel very different and we experience very different sensations within our bodies than if we were in a very stressed, overwhelmed, like hyper aroused state and we'd make very different decisions. So yeah. I think for me being able to recognize, well, hang on, like my thoughts are racing, my heart rate's increasing, you know, I'm a little bit clammy, right? I'm I'm in like what we would call like survival mode or hyper arousal. Let me just regulate myself and ground before I make a decision about this behavior yeah there's something right there you know we're talking about school is self-regulation for children how to be attuned with their emotions and how to settle themselves down that, yes. that's something arguably they, they could be taught i guess and i wanted to ask you about that actually because you've also got this very other important job which is as a mum as a mother how you instill some of the life lessons that you've learned something i always think about with with my children is you obviously don't want to expose them to the worst aspects of the world you want to preserve them protect them but equally you want them to develop a level of resilience mm -hmm. those kind of things so even if it's just mild disappointment they experience from time to time that is really low level yeah. resilience they're forming how do we do that in this world it's 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 hard isn't it? it's really <laughs> and i think i've got a nearly 15 year old and a one-year-old so i've you know the ages are very different and i think in those 15 years I've obviously learned a huge amount and I think one of the things with my eldest was that I ex you know I experienced trauma I experienced pain because I'm human and I didn't want him to experience that so I then tried to take that away from him um whereas I think what you said now I'm older I realize actually it's really important that our kids experience things like boredom discomfort distress because then they can learn the skills to manage them mm. Yes, because 
as you say, it's like even boredom, I think, is something that's not really appreciated We because we're constantly able to distract ourselves these days. But even things like I often say meditation, a lot of reason why people find that so difficult is because they're not used to just sitting there with their own thoughts is we, we constantly feel we have to be. And maybe that is that societal push that we have to be productive, that we have to be doing, that we have to be accomplishing things with that spare time. There's no time for just rest and just being. You don't have to be doing something. You can just be. Yeah. You know, yeah. No expectations of yourself. Yeah. I, and I definitely would say that that's something that hugely comes up in my work a lot, this mm. real resistance and almost a, it feels like a threat to the system that to rest and do nothing. Like if I'm, uh, for example, someone might be, if, I, if I'm watching TV, I have to be on my phone. Like yeah. almost like there's this double thing or, you know, if I, I could listen to music, but I might as well just finish that email as well. Yeah. Yeah. That, that almost like that self-nurturance feels like it's last on the list. Yeah. That does come from that hustle drive though. I mean, even to the point, I think even back a few years ago is I could, as I said, we live by the sea. So I, I love taking the dog for a walk, but just that oh, if I'm taking for the dog for a walk and listen to an audio book, I can learn something as well. Like I can't just love the scenery and appreciate being in the moment with my dog. I've got to be learning as well. And I felt really proud of myself for that. And I think yeah. about how those tendencies and those messages have lent themselves quite well to professionally and also like in fitness pursuits over the years like those tendencies are quite nurtured in those cultures like bodybuilding you know being meticulous with your food hitting your protein target you know preparing everything out of tupperware and hitting all your exercise sessions waking up at 4am and doing your cardio it's again it's all applauded you know it's, it's incredibly confusing to people that want to be healthier and something I'm conscious to always talk about is the intent and the behavior because you know it's the we want people to be healthier we want them to engage in physical activity learn to nourish their bodies but then what's the drivers behind that yeah yeah because there's been some research hasn't there around I think for a lot of people that struggle that shame is never a beneficial like beneficial uh, driving factor and that actually we want we want people to achieve this from internal motivation Mm. and I think that's very difficult when you see people in in ascetic bodies that we associate with fitness getting this external validation because I think almost that's sometimes that driving force and I think that's probably a fear of a lot of people that I work with of of let's say letting go or moving into their healthy you know body size and shape that they wouldn't get that validation and then who then then who are they yeah yeah again I think that's a lot of the reason the drivers why I got into it and that transition I don't know whether you found it I know you stepped straight into powerlifting but I found that transition quite difficult because that new social circle that you're with it's that's what conversation revolves around your next competition or your next photo shoot or you know are you cutting are you bulking all these other phrases that are thrown around so when you're transitioning away from that and your identity is locked so much into it is it so it becomes an expectation of people but it's self-imposed <laughs> you know you're in this prison that you've created yourself and it's it's really difficult to move away from it yeah and I think very similar like I love the fitness industry it does wonderful things but I think there are parts of the fitness industry can be like a bubble mm. and that can get a little bit toxic because you think if everything becomes so normalized like tracking your calories becomes normal training six days a week training through injury training if you're ill all of those things become like normal human behaviors whereas you know the fitness industry is so small in comparison with 
the general population that if you step outside of that industry, you, you're thinking, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Tracking calories like this every yeah. single meal. And you realize that it's not, it's common, but it's not normal. Yeah, it is. And as you say, it's the broader population, it isn't. But then, you know, when people are, I think it's labeled as disordered quite often because we like to take a, we like to pathologize everything. We like to take the extreme view on it. But equally, like when people are in that that space and it's removing from experience the other aspects of life, yeah, it probably is. Like the 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 line, I guess. What, what would your opinion be of disordered to slipping into eating disorder? I guess on that because I, I again I reflect back to my own experiences. I think possibly like I I, I probably did have a little bit of an eating disorder at some yeah. point. I think any any behavior or any thinking pattern that prevents us from pursuing normal daily functioning would be classed as disordered and I personally don't I know the DSM-5 have strict parameters on on what would be a an eating disorder or disordered but I think if a behavior or a, a group of behaviors are causing you distress mm. then that is a sign that you probably are in need of some support yeah I wonder what, how many people are numb to that, though, because, again, as you say, it's, it's become so normalised and people aren't necessarily striving for perfection. They're just trying to be on like a, a normal even kill with everyone else. But they feel like they're they're falling behind because of that is the new normal. Yeah. Yeah. And then it does. I mean, I, I would probably say I stepped out of the fitness industry, like being within it and I'm probably like sitting on the edge of it. Um, maybe five, six years ago. Um, I was still like personal training throughout lockdown and things like that. Um, but I wouldn't say I involved myself in like the events and things like that anymore. And I think it does take time to create something different because you're so involved within a community and then you don't have that anymore. What mm. are you about? Mm. Was that a conscious thing to step out? It just naturally happened for you. It just happened really really naturally as other aspects of my life grew yeah yeah now setting up the home farm yes <laughs> yeah but, I remember that take, this is taking a lot of time yeah but it does sound like you made a conscious step away from making I guess work a priority yeah and I um yeah I just put in I guess professional and personal boundaries that support me to have time so for example in the past I may have always got up got all my work done and out the way and then allowed myself to relax or play or whatever it was but now it's very much you know the aspects of work that I'm lucky enough to do whenever I'll just do them whenever and you know but actually getting up to what the dogs is more important and making cookies with my son is more important um and I have set times that I work with clients but then everything around that mm. I know it gets done and mm. it's never a hassle and if things like you know the things that fall off the list are things like social media that I'm like oh it would be nice if I've got time to do that I'll do it but it's not a priority over like making my vegetable beds yeah I love that uh, I, I guess Atticus allows you to do that as well. He's got to come along for the ride, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he, in terms of making the vegetable beds. Yeah. Well, and baking cookies and anything, oh. the jobs you're trying to do. Oh, yeah. He's, he's, he's trying to undo everything as well, aren't they? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he is heavily involved in everything, makes everything 10 times probably slower, but that's <laughs> not a bad thing and 10 times more fun. Yeah. Yes, yeah, it's, it's it's so funny how they can be equally the most challenging but the joyful thing ever. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, talking back to that self-regulation, I think that's been the most important thing that I've ever learned as a parent. Mm. You know, they, little kids don't have capacity to be able to regulate. And actually our role as parents is to support them and to be the grounded. Yeah. Um, That they know that they can have a paddy and then, you know, we're still just going to be the same, you know, there with our arms open. Yeah, I have to remind myself at the moment of that. Yeah. <laughs> Jack's <laughs> going through a very boisterous, mischievous phase. Bless so he's going to a very strong world. He likes to climb. I don't know whether that is from an evolutionary sort of just programming to boys. I caught him with keys, probably a centimetre away from sticking in a plug socket the other day. Don't even know where he got the keys from. Uh, he quite likes to switch the Wi-Fi box off, but whilst making eye contact with you mischievously. Yes. There's something about boys, they like mischief, they like climbing, they yeah. love cars. I don't know yeah. whether that's something we've pushed onto him, whereas Mila can happily sit there, she can do her colouring in, she's quite gentle, quite, I don't know whether that motherly thing comes in quite young. Yeah. Or whether, yeah, whether it is a genetic predisposition, whether it is like yeah. patriarchal, well captivity and we unconsciously pass it on yeah do you think we unconsciously treat them different I don't know I've only got boys so I think something that we myself and my husband became really conscious of was as we've learned more about it is that toxic masculinity mm. you know in saying things you know you just hear hear it said don't you come on boys don't cry yeah. you know they kind of things we're super conscious not to say that we you know we want them to feel able to feel safe to feel the whole spectrum of human emotion yeah I do feel I don't know whether it's more pressure I don't know whether it's but my awareness of things and how I've grown up as a man but I, I do feel I don't know whether it's more important job but it's it's quite important to do a good job with boys mm-hmm. and I'm aware of that with Jacks, and mm-hmm. you know the messages here be exposed to because not that I'm ever going to get the violins out for men is a, a bit of a weird time for men in terms of being pushed and pulled certain ways and moving away from that that previous narrative that stoic stiff upper lip just crack on with it to some, being something a little bit more open I think a lot of men struggle with that because it's, it's not it's not common to them it's not it's yeah. something that's almost being demanded of them yes. but is very alien to them so I think they want to there is willing there but equally they you know there's maybe not um space to get things wrong I think sometimes with how the narrative and the discussion around it is is you can, it can it will be quite unforgiving to get things wrong as a man but even when you're trying to learn sometimes I've been accused of mansplaining a couple of times for example where discussions about men I and mean, you know adding something to it it's like oh here's the man someone on I've come off social media recently but on threads I can't remember what I was talking about but um someone I've never connected with oh you're one of those hashtag not all men so where, where is that where come from? From? Oh, I'd, I'd like to think I'm not all men but I would never say that. and equally I'd never say I was mansplaining anything but if you're having conversations about men and you're you know you're opening up the conversation to them they should be part of that as well yeah 100% so I wonder whether and this is just a just a curious thought whether 
obviously women fought for their rights and a sense of equality and we went through that where we we were the caregivers and then we also had this massive opportunity and this amazing opportunity to get into the workplace to vote and we became you know there was that struggle to manage it all and this then expectation to be the caregiver but also to bring income in because we could do it and that phrase of superwoman coming in I wonder whether now a similar thing is happening to men in terms of hey you should still look a certain way and you should still look strong and be able to do xyz and be the main breadwinner oh but also we want you to be able to be emotive with us and actually it's that that just that balance of trying to be everything which is sometimes almost impossible yeah that's really fascinating I've never thought of it that way I was talking to uh, Shannon Beer about she was talking to me about some research that into since like feminism and the discussion around the patriarchy has been brought more to the forefront of people's attention for all the right reasons there's been this right well whether it's coincidental there's a whole causation correlation thing but this rise in body image standards in men whether yeah. they've like double down in physically embodying a certain look and you know we've seen it with productivity hacking and aspirations mm-hmm. of wealth and showboating with material items I don't know whether that is just they are tied or you know whether whether some men feel threatened because of that I don't know yeah yeah and almost then it in it pushes them more into I guess their their masculinity or I just think that's how you know the negative impacts of the patriarchy on men as well I think a lot of people think patriarchy is men versus women mm, whereas yeah. actually it's men and women versus a system yeah yeah because it you know if I you're on a modern day man I like to think you don't benefit from the patriarchy either really no no absolutely not and it, those feelings of you know if if you're if your female partner is earning more money than you, you know, that that for obvious reasons shouldn't make a man feel bad, but it does. And that is the impact of patriarchy. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, and that whole, you, you mentioned it specifically there, the whole care provider thing. I'm not saying I am quite hands-on with the kids, but I've always, you know, I, whether it's my own experiences, I think the, the narrative around men is to be the provider from a financial standpoint, but... Also, what about the, the care provider as well? We don't tend to think about it from that point of view. And I think that's quite important. I think yeah. I, I, that was another one of those things I, I might have mentioned on, on social media and someone said to me, get a job, mate. But that, that's often from the how men talk about it, whether it's a joke or not. It's That yeah. imposes those, you know, those belief systems around certain gender roles. Yeah. I do think, I do think with the, um, the movement of like split, split maternity paternity I think that supports things a little bit yeah yeah there's I think was it Aviva was one of the first to do or they match it I think you can take up to six months yeah if you work I don't think it's solely Aviva I think there's quite a few companies but yeah certainly paternity because I do know of men that wanted to take paternity leave that were refused it because it's not I don't know whether it's considered as but as in perhaps they wouldn't go, men wouldn't go to the lengths that a woman might having her maternity be refused. And that is, you know, you have to bring the money, you know, or you're going to lose money or you're going to take it unpaid, things like that. Yeah. Because that that equality thing goes both ways, right? Right, 100%, yeah. yeah. And offering a man to, what is it, two weeks paid leave they're generally allowed? I think generally, but I think it depends on kind of the industry. Yeah. If it's more classic, 
kind of archetype these yeah. are bloke-led industries is it wouldn't even be a conversation i say that my friend he works in i don't know job role i'm gonna i'm gonna butcher it i'm gonna say piping they lay gas piping okay i don't know what he's called but where he when his son was born he was refused maternity wow. pay yeah or leave not even pay just leave full stop and if you wanted to take leave it had to be holiday and it had to be around key projects they were having at that time as well yeah um, and actually, and I, I'm sorry go ahead sorry, I was just gonna say I, I could probably talk about it now because it's uh even Rosa when I mean Mila didn't kind of we were trying to conceive with Mila for a little while when she was in her old previous job and she transferred job and she was two weeks shy of her six-month probationary period and it was well, I mean, at her interview, her then manager said to her, uh, have you got any kids? Are you planning on having any kids? And then said, oh, fuck, I'm not allowed to ask you that. That was in the interview. Yeah. And then he was the one that also refused her maternity pay because she wasn't past her probationary period when she fell pregnant. So we didn't get any maternity when, when um, I'm self-employed. So it was juggling the two. Incredibly difficult. And I think it is really hard for people for businesses because the government aren't supporting businesses in an adequate way to support people to have children mm, yeah. is, I, what is I'm the same as you I, I'm self-employed so I think with Atticus I got like 600 pounds a month yeah it's um it's uh, statutory isn't it just whatever that is I, I don't so know unless, what that is now unless uh, you're working in a big cooperation and there's enough staff to take on that role, that business then has to employ someone else and they then have to pay for any top up to that. So yeah. it is an expense. Um, and I'm not saying in any way that that's, that's a reason why women shouldn't be offered opportunities. Mm. But again, I don't blame the businesses. I blame higher up. Yeah, yeah, the, the whole culture, the societal standards, the the infrastructure is just isn't there to support working parents. Full stop. I don't think. I mean, you look at childcare fees. Yeah, you know, we we've recently moved Jacks, but his previous nursery was like eighty three pounds a day. Yeah. I'm, I'm I'm Essex. I'm not Central London. Yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I, I don't know what people pay in Central London, but you know, essentially, I do understand why one parent may choose not to work at all for the extra fifty pounds they might might get they might just say oh I just want to spend time with my child you know yeah. whichever parent that is and I wonder on that you know we're talking about the how that the narrative changed slightly for men is this this whole message around women and you can you can have it all you can do it all what do you think of that I used to think it was super empowering like a feminist act that you know I can do it I I was a solo mum I had my first son when I was 18 I went to uni you know I did these sporting achievements and I thought you know what if I can do it so can like what's the excuse why why can't everyone and again I think that was that belief system but um I was also super exhausted burnt out probably still recovering from from trauma in my teens and not really enjoying life and I think you know that message is I think it can be toxic you know I think when I was thinking you know about my beliefs worked really hard on my beliefs around like stay-at-home mums and working mums and like why I felt differently between the two um and having been more of a stay-at-home mum with my second um for me work coming to work is a break 
Like I feel like being a stay-at-home mum is the one of the most challenging, wonderful but challenging things in the world. Um, and I think I've come to learn more about feminist theory, and I understand more that actually feminism is about choice. You know, I can make a feminist choice for me would could be to choose to be a stay-at-home mum if that's what I wanted to do. But me trying to do it all and be, you know, a perfect mom to, you know, run a business and working in all hours under the sun and probably study and do something else. Actually, I'm spreading myself too thin and no one's getting the best of me. Mm. So yeah, I think you're, you're not even getting the best of you as well. Yeah, I, I think you have to make choices. Yeah, because I wonder that now, especially with you mentioning that about men, because I do think I don't think there's pressure, but I think, you know, I, I want to. Mm. Of my children's life a little bit more I'm very fortunate I can do that I can juggle work around school runs I can take a day off a week with Jack's and just have a daddy Jack's day and that's quite a nice thing to do but equally that does come with I don't want to say sacrifice just compromise because that means for work if I was employed which I'm not I don't think I'm employable now but um <laughs> I don't think I could go back I, I, it's been I've been self-employed for 14 years now and I just think even though you've got the the financial security and the appeal of that of being employed is I just wonder what the quality of life is because you can do it all it's just what is the quality of life for you or anyone else around you you can tick all those boxes but no one's getting anything really again you're just back in survival mode aren't you you're thriving as as a person and I you know I've got friends they will leave for work at six o'clock in the morning they'll get home at eight o'clock in the evening and then when it comes to the weekend because they're so fried from work they want to go play yeah. golf all day but they, they have two or three children at home and like, you know it's, again it's not for me to judge but I just think it's it's so incredibly difficult to have it all and that is the message for everyone now is you can yeah. have it and I think you get so stuck don't you into if you are, are earning a, a pretty good wage within an employed job you then get the house and the mortgage and then you you're stuck you feel a little bit stuck because you might not want to carry on that job where you have to get up at 6am but you can't get out of it because yeah. you've now got a family yeah and actually then starting something up from scratch you're never going to be meeting those those financial needs as early on it's interesting isn't it I find even people that I know that were in the city full-time pre-pandemic, they've got used to life without doing that now. And obviously with the cost of living and everything else. And financially, they're, they're kind of at loggerheads with their bosses now because I can understand it from the business standpoint, if you're paying a London waiting wage, that's essentially what you get that London waiting wage for. So the expectation is that you eventually come back to the office. But people have, you know, moulded their lives around this new way of being. We're incredibly adaptable, aren't we? as humans and they've got used to that yeah and i from the research i've read the productivity hasn't decreased no no it's not but again it's part of that culture isn't it it's that societal this is how we've always done things this is how we should i mean you know rosa again previously she was told that she couldn't work from home wow okay so her job didn't lend itself to working at home until the pandemic and it was forced yeah. and actually that much more productive but even with those metrics because they pay for properties elsewhere is the expectation is still that you you do it as it always has been done even though that people were using zoom or they were using teams or whatever it was is i hear accounts of people still having to go you know oh, i have to go to a meeting in leeds today but it's only yeah. one meeting and then i'm coming back it's like well surely if the pandemic has opened our eyes to anything just can't can't we do that honestly oh no no it has to be done in person i do get yeah. some of it but you know uh, equally i think that some people just haven't learned 
anything from that. Yeah, yeah. And I, like you said, I 100% get that there is such value in in-person meetings that you can't get through a screen. And also you have to take in like the, all the other things into account, don't you? Um, that if you're worried about the environment, do I really need to be driving up to Leeds, jumping on the train, those type of things as well. It's, I think it's about stepping out and just seeing a bigger picture from time to time. Yeah. I guess all week, you know, it's, it's very difficult not to compare your circumstances to those around you. And again, something that social media is great for connecting people, but exacerbates all those comparisons you naturally have. So right. even I find knowing better is when you are trying to live a little bit of a simpler existence is that allure to, oh, well, maybe if like, I was doing a little bit more than that could afford like better experiences as a family. But actually, you know, there's the simple things like, as I said, walking the dog, you know, taking my daughter to school, having that day a week off is there's always going to be more, but this is my, or it's my narrative that I tell myself is there's always more money to be made, but there's not necessarily more time available to us, especially yeah. when they're, they're younger as well. Yeah. And is it a sacrifice that we're willing to make? And, you know, would I rather make more money or have more time with my children? And for me personally, I'm not willing to make the sacrifice to give up that time with my children. Yeah. But I, you know, that's, that's my personal opinion. And I know that that doesn't fit with everyone's. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I'm hugely conscious of your time. Cause I know you're a busy person and I really appreciate you. I, you know, I really appreciate the chat. Just in case anyone wanted, we haven't even spoken about what you do, just in case no one knew what you do. If they did want to find out more from you or about you, Rachel, and everything that you offer, where would they go? Where's best for them to go? Uh, so our website is thenurturecircle.com. Oh, you're uh, out, aren't you? I remember now. You're an yes. collective. Um, and I am on Instagram as dietitian.rachelhobbs. Excellent. Is there anything else you'd like to mention? Plug? You have a web, you have a podcast as well don't you we do we've just started a new podcast actually myself yeah. and um an amazing coach that I get to work with called Corey um called it's just called the nurture circle podcast and we talk about all things yeah from self-worth feminism a lot of body image disordered eating stuff um yes yeah, so have a listen Excellent. Thank you so much again. And if anyone has enjoyed this, please do share it on socials. I'm not on socials this month, but I'm still going to release these episodes. But I've just really? decided to have a month off of everything, just because I never have. Have you not? I've never had a total month off, as in deleted everything off my phone and just, I'm just going to separate myself entirely from it. So that's what I'm going to do this month. I did read a really interesting blog about um, someone that used to use them a lot and then took a year off. Oh, wow. And he basically wrote, it was a really interesting experience, but he wouldn't do it again for a full year because he felt like he missed out on like updates from his friends mm. and just being involved in some of those things, which I thought was really interesting and gave kind of a balanced. Yeah. Bit. Yeah. I just, in terms of like what it's going to lend itself to just being a bit more productive, reading yeah. a bit more, spending a bit more time with the family, being present, not that constant pull to grab my phone and things like that. I noticed that was creeping in, but yeah. We shall see. Yes. Oh, well, enjoy it. In two weeks. You might see me back on. No, you won't. But um, <laughs> yeah, thanks again. No, thank you so much for inviting me.